I, I don't know for sure, but um, given his his Marxist tendencies, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that was the, the, you know, kind of where he delimited. Uh, hey, hey, sorry, hold on one second. Hey, I'm in the middle of the podcast now. If it's not an emergency, I gotta go. Okay, I'll call you then. Bye. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> my father needs to talk to me first thing in the morning. Um, <laughs> he heard my he heard my Welbeck spiel. <laughs> he just wanted to call and tell me I'm no son of his. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, Adam Kamara. And me, the slumming angel, Jake Siegel. This week, we have a special guest appearing with us, Olivia Gerard. Olivia is a Marine Corps officer, an assistant editor at the Strategy Bridge, and tweets at T and Tactics. The views expressed here are hers alone and do not reflect the official position of the Marine Corps, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. All right, Olivia, thank you for being here with Phil and I. Yeah, why, don't you. You, uh, why don't you tell us why you chose the ULIPO for the manifesto and a bit about the ULIPO and what interests you about this group? Certainly. One, uh, thank you so much for, for letting me join in. It's, it's fun to be able to, to actually, you know, get on, get online and, and, and chat about, chat about these things. Um, but what, uh, stood out to me, actually a friend of mine sent, um, really good, uh, lit hub article about, uh, I think R.O. Kwan, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who turned all of her books uh, so that the pages were facing out rather than the, the covers, you know, really making it so that you're not judging a book by its cover. And those are even the books that she had throughout her, throughout her, um, her house. And, uh, you know, reading through it, I thought it was curious. And I was like, that's really interesting. Um, and she cited, uh, this article or this, uh, manifesto, um, on bookshelves. And what's really interesting, one, it wasn't hyperlinked. So I actually had to, you know, go to Google search, um, and take that extra step to find it. But it, it feels it more really real just, that way. Yes. Yes. The, the effort makes it, makes it worth it. But, um, what was so interesting about, you know, on bookshelves, it was the first introduction I had to Ulipo, which is a, a shortening of, I believe, ouvroir de literature potentielle. Oh, so, wow. you know, work, workshop of potential literature, right. um, where they, they come up with artificial constructs that constrain in some ways uh, what, what you can write or, you know, ways that you make certain choices, um, but still being yeah. able to say that, hey, you have a lot of options for that. So, um, um, and so should, we, should we talk about, like, you know, some of the most prominent members would be like Italo Calvino, um, George Perec. George Perec famously once wrote a novel without using the letter E. I think that's probably the most famous Ulipo thing, right? If people have heard of anything, it's the novel without the letter E. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I like that they go with workshop instead of laboratory. Yeah. I feel a workshop for language 
is a has a better connotation than a laboratory for language. But I think that one way to describe what they're trying to do in a bigger sense, and tell me if you agree, Olivia, is reintroduce some of the um, genre-creating and meaning-creating constraints that had existed in more formal literary conventions that got obliterated by modernism. So... Like, you know, now you have free verse, you have blank verse, you can uh, fill a page with nothing but consonants and asterisks and call that a poem. Um, and they were trying to bring back some of the, not the formality necessarily, but the uh, imposed limitation, imposed constraint mm -hmm. And, you know, therefore the imposed shape on language and on the meaning conveyed by language that you would have found in earlier literary forms. Does that sound right? Yes. And I, I think you highlight that by saying the workshop vice laboratory, because that that evokes the sense of craft. Um, and, you know, craft means that you're working with whatever material you have, be it wood or, you know, metal or in this case, words and language. And, you know, there's a reason the sonnet is still around. Um, you know, that's a very, very constrained formula, but the ways in which that we're able to continuously evoke new feelings, um, is, is I think indicative of exactly what they're trying to show. And, and, uh, the, the manifesto that we're, we're looking at, the you know, work that we're looking at on bookshelves by Anne Garetta, I don't know, if I'm pronouncing, I'm probably, I'm not pronouncing that right. I know I'm not, I'm going to go with, I know I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, so she was inducted or co-opted into the, the Ulipo. She'd, she'd written a couple novels that sort of had sort of Ulipoian constraints. Her first novel is a love story between two people that never gives any indication of, of, of gender, grammatical gender for the narrator, the love interest. She wrote a novel, La Decomposition, about a serial killer who methodically murders characters from Marcel Proust in search of lost time. A phenomenal plot device. <laughs> it's incredible. So many characters in In Search of Lost Time have murder coming their way, you know. <laughs> and also, it's a, a f fantastic setting for a kind of murder spree. You know, it's very... There's a clue air about it. You have all the props in place for a serial killer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I, I, I never read anything of hers before you sent this our way, and I loved it. So I, I, definitely, I definitely want to pick up uh, one of her novels. Uh, and she won the Prix Medicis in 2002 um, for a novel that is awarded to an author whose fame does not yet match their talent. Uh, That's a good award. Yeah, yeah. She's the second Ulipoian to win it. Did you know her aside from this, Olivia, or did you? Yeah, no, I, I had, um, you know, not been introduced uh, to her. Actually, this is my, my first foray um, into Ulipo. Uh, as, you know, I had heard of uh, Parekh's um, novel without the E, you know, going into that's just like, why would you do that? But when you start to peel back, you know, the reasons why they're doing it and you start looking at uh, how they're, they're actually looking at form um, as a medium in and of itself uh, that that is able to produce you know a lot of different iterations of uh, of things that you you see kind of what um, 
what they're working with. And what I think is really interesting about on bookshelves is that in, in some ways this is taking even a further step back and looking at the books themselves. Yeah. Um, so should we get, should we get, let's get into on bookshelves. Then. Yeah, let's do it. Um, cause she, <laughs> she, she opens it up just saying, you know, what is the Ulipo? An ironic gift in a world of words, 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 surging into books, books, books. In facing this madly proliferating multitude of language, there has to be some method. I'm that brother that you don't know if he gonna stab you in your back or kiss you, man. You know, it's like, I don't know, I act off other people's emotions, right? Because I got like 36 different ones myself, you know? That's why I'm a method, man. And so... Uh, it then sort of moves from that into, you know, and she points out, you know, what is composition if not a considered and deliberate imposition of order? Um, you know, what we hope to do when we uh, impose order on things, how that's related to the act of composition itself, and, um, and also uh, what it means to exist in this world of, of words um, that... Uh, uh, she has this really kind of delightful turn where she says, you know, books may well be an alien species, parasites proliferating on the body of humanity, breeding uncontrollably in modern climates. Um, and, you know, books have invaded your life, colonized your home and brain, and you never even noticed it. Well, and I, I think she picks that up when she says, picture in their steed, the ultimate uncanny alien species, books. And it's, it's very strange um, initially to to think of books as being um, other and uh, separate and out there, but that's exactly why we turn to books is is to be able to to see another perspective um, and to to get into the mind of whatever narrator or author um, was trying to create. And so, in many ways, it actually is ultimately you know completely alien. Um, but there's there's a weird familiarity, which is why I think, you know, uncanny is such a perfect way to describe that. But there's a consonance in what she is using, the description of books that she has here is consonant in a way with uh, contemporary theories about artificial intelligence and some ideas about the kind of autonomous intelligence of capitalism, actually, in some of the accelerationist thinking. She talks about books as uh, alien parasites. She's not talking about books as a window into the consciousness of many people, right? The, the books filling her shelves are not uh, conduits to the people who wrote the books. They are some sort of autonomous unit of information of, uh, cognition of some kind of presence. She says books may well be an alien species, parasites proliferating on the body of humanity, breeding uncontrollably in modern climates. She's not there, you know, and that's a less than flattering description of books. She kind of alternates um, in terms of um, how she describes their alien quality. But uh, that's not a description of books as belonging to or, or inherited from authors. Like, this is a, a concept of books more or less divorced from their authors. Yeah. They're autonomous entities of, of some kind. And 
in a way, it reminds me of some of the thinking on artificial intelligence and on the autonomous, evolving intelligence of the universe or of uh, the systems for collating information in the universe. Yeah, but um, with 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 books and you know, um, you know, one of the things that I that I think about there is like. There's there's that notion of books as like a window to the soul of the author or a window uh, – it's like a window to this other time. And then there's that kind of like every culture that picks up a book and makes it its own thing for that time. And actually each individual reader's kind of consciousness reflecting off of the book, you know, crafting a different novel mm. than what was imagined, right? And, you know, the, the kind of easy example that I always go to is the Iliad, right? Like I can't read the Iliad the way that an ancient Greek read the Iliad. That doesn't mean that the ancient Greek's reading is superior because he's more meshed in the culture. I know a lot of things that that guy doesn't know. I know a lot of the mistakes Homer made. I know, you know, a lot of things that I can read back into that text having, you know, the benefit of, you know, several thousand years of other literature about war that can inform that reading. So when I come to that, not just when I come to it as like a modern human but also at different stages of my life, I – it. I create a different experience when I'm reading it that is in some ways about touching back to that whatever original kind of culture or impetus mm. drew, drew forth it. But, it, but it's also a lot about who I am and what use I'm making of it as a tool, right? And then in her conception, it's like, okay, you're, you're using the book as a tool, but maybe, maybe the book itself is just using you. Yeah, right. Maybe the book is using you. And I, I think that's a really interesting way to, to look at books. I think – you know, the, the perception is, is very much that it's, you know, we've housed our thoughts, we're using it for, for our purposes. And, and she writes, full of replicants, living dead voices, snatched from bodies now rotting in old graves, vampires feeding off your imagination. And yeah, one that, that's just wonderfully evocative. But I think the vampires is a particularly apt choice because vampires need you. They need your blood um, in order to, to continue to, to survive. And so there's a point at which the vampire might take too much, but there's, there's this uh, relationship between you and the book that, that the book only lives because you, you are able to, to read it. And so that's where you get the living dead voices um, that you're kind of reanimating. Um, so I think there's also this zombie sense, too, uh, of of books, which, which feeds into the, the alien nature as well. But insofar as they're vampires, right, then they're, they're not autonomous. They're, and, and in this sense, clearly they're not autonomous because she calls them vampires and parasitic. So it's, it's, it's what you're saying, right? That the books need you. They, they fill a space that, you know, surrounds you and crowds you and you don't know what to do about them. And look, it, you know, on a simple level, this is an essay of sorts. Uh, you know, it's a piece of writing about having a room full of books. That's what this is about. This is, this is a writer describing the sense of disorder, of uh, claustrophobia, of uh, spreading disorder that one gets looking at books that can never be perfectly arranged. That right. if they're messy or messy and if they're neat are still short of... Well, well, so there's this really 
kind of funny refrain of like, I'm like a human being. I need to do the laundry, right? Like I need yes. to do the basic tasks. And then I'm like on the way to the laundry, there's the charter house of Parma. Can I just open it up and look and in, look inside it? Um, but to get to the, the, the organization uh, bit is, you know, the doing the laundry fits with, you know, having a neat structured order, ordered life, which, which books intrude upon. And then, you know, this idea of like, well, maybe if I can organize the library, it will, you know, somehow uh, impose order on my life. And so a significant portion of this essay is her thinking up of ways in which she could organize the library in a way that was not, you know, simple alphabetic or whatever, but actually related to the ways that she relates to the books, right? And where they're, they're structured according to categories that sort of mean something to her. Um, and so she comes up with a bunch of different methods, um, you know, where she might put, you know, principle two, together might live, books written avoiding the letter E, books that thankfully spare the reader any dialogue, books that abstain from focalized descriptions, books written without assigning characters any gender marks, books flouting the requirements of punctuation and spelling. And, you know, that's one, you know, uh, one suggestion, you know, another one is related to um, other literary works. So it's sort of like uh, one of them is, you know, uh, books that would have fit in a room of one's own, Books Forgotten in Motel Rooms by Humble Humbert, which I thought was particularly nice. Uh, books from the Vaticana that could be adduced to justify Lafcadio's gratuitous crime. Books in which Danish, Danish princes would be liable to find nothing but words, words, words. And then there's, you know, all these other different sort of organizing prim principles that she could come up with. And this work belongs in its own section of uh, library because it is part of a kind of loose... Uh, category of books, actually. So she's trying to devise a category that will not, uh, that will be uh, sustainable. And, and she's struggling, running into the problem of categories. She writes at one point, the categorical remedies. Uh, no, I'm sorry. She writes at some point, errant books are but the surface symptoms of a more radical disorder. All the governing principles and recipes for classification I have tried to apply to my books have been to no avail. Useless, pitifully powerless to contain and rule over this carnal mess of a library in the midst of which I seem to be doomed to lead a life mired in disarray by a damned, damnable reading libido and the anarchic proliferation of language bombs. Uh, clearly somebody who is not going to be satisfied with any kind of uh, formal system of classification for very long. But there's a whole, you know, genre of literature. Calvino, who's part of the Ulipo, uh, has his own uh, short work about uh, the kind of book collector. Walter Benjamin has a famous uh, piece of writing uh, on book collecting and you know, if you were going to do like a personal library, she might be books that are about book collecting and the anguish and ambivalence of book collectors. Well, it's, al it's also about how, how fitting the books together is related to how you're trying to organize your own mind at any point, right? So, I, no, I, like, I do this. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure you do. You know, there's like the books that you're working. That That's the main thing right. it's about. Yeah. And then like on my bookshelf, you know, there's like 
you know, there's like a section that is related to, you know, philosophers thinking about fascism from kind of right-wing folks like, you know, Junger and Schmidt to Hannah Arendt. There's like a section of the bookshelves. It's like Colombian authors in Spanish. There's a section of my bookshelf. You know, it's like, and, and they're bits that don't make any kind of sense to anybody but me. Um, and then if I don't look at that section of the bookshelf for long enough, I forget why I've put those books in that section of the yeah. bookshelf because it was related to some argument I was having in my own mind and in my own writing at the time. And, you know, one of the things that she she points out is, you know, if you organize a bookshelf according to those lines in terms of I'm going to group books together according to ways in which, you know, they're personally related to me and 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 um, and, and, you know, meaningful to me. She writes, no one except you could ever find a book in a library you would have arranged according to such principles. It will seem to any outsider either random, sloppy, or demented. I can't search your mind to find a book in your personal library. Worse, you may find each time you search your own memory that books have shifted. And I, I think that's the, the key point that, that she's, or that tension that she's trying to bring out, is that at one point, you have these somewhat socially constructed conventions on on what we think we should categorize things together. So, you know, things that are political violence or things that are talking about monkeys or things that are, you know, talking about books and, and book collecting. And then you also have the way in which you look at it. And I, I think her most powerful, or at least to me, principle was, was the last one books given to you by someone you love, loved, have loved, books you talked about with someone you loved, books you wish you had talked about with someone you loved, books you imagine someone you love or you have loved could or could have enjoyed. And I think those going down really just shows the contingency that you are highlighting of, of all of these categorizations, which is the problem of, of kind of this public-private dichotomy that she's she's wrestling with in terms of, you know, do I have to concede to the the public category or, you know, do I go kind of more honest to myself? Um, but as she, she notes that the, the pro the biggest problem with that is that you could end up with what she calls a dead private language. And that, that I think was, was very tragic in some ways. Explain a dead private language. The way that she's she's working at that is, your your memories change. There's there's not, you know, these these categories, especially personal, are not going to be um, continuous. Uh, so with the case of books given to you by someone you love, loved or have loved, you know that that one's a little bit more stable because it, it gives the you know past, present, and future of that. Whereas someone you you could have loved. Um, or could have enjoyed, you might end up, you know, something could happen where you can't think of those, that person in those terms anymore. Um, or there were other ones where you, you might've read it or, you know, books that left no memory. How how do you categorize books that left no memory? Because I, I would think that you've, you've then forgot that book. So it's, it's a, so it's a, it's a Wittgenstein reference, right? And, uh, where she, and she, I think she, references Wittgenstein explicitly um, as, and, and she calls the organization of a, of a of 
her bookshelf a quasi-private language, right? Um, and it's, it's um, you know, it's part of this argument that Wittgenstein says, like, there is no such thing as a private language, um, that language is, is created out of a series of, I'm not going to do justice to Wittgenstein's uh, argument here, but uh, a series of kind of uh, social practices or sort of language games that... Um, yeah, and this rely is, on being sort of enmeshed in a social sphere, so that yeah. if if you had a private language, even the 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 you know the individual couldn't couldn't uh, understand it intelligibly. And for her, you know, there's a way in which you know if, if these things become too 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 personal or too sort of faded from use, right? Because if, if you're dealing with books, you're dealing with things that at the end of the day were written by other people, despite her sort of, you know, parasite, vampire, alien species things. And writing is an act of communication. Um, if it becomes too in inward, it becomes a dead private language and then useless even to the individual themselves. But y you're looking at me skeptically, Jake. I read it a bit differently, actually. And maybe I need to go back to uh, the specific reference to dead private language, but... On the one hand, there's the, the, the language that becomes dead or inert because it becomes too private. It becomes cut off from intelligible meaning to those with whom you would wish to communicate. So it's as if you were a mute. Um, you're just bleating noises into the world because the language that you're using uh, in, in turning so inward loses the, uh, the expressive potential to convey anything to anyone else. So that's, that's one definition. And, you know, the, what you're talking about for with uh, Wittgenstein, I, I don't know if that's the correct interpretation of his philosophy on language, which I'm not actually familiar with. But the idea that language is a uh, socially formed uh, means of communication, that language is not uh, abstractly derived or, or right. built off of intrinsic semantic categories. Um, you know, this is a, a lot of modern that, science supports this idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's increasingly, uh, I think, a consensus among... Uh, actually, you can never talk about consensus with <laughs> brain science stuff, but many uh, prominent scientists now... Uh, seem to think that the the brain evolved uh, for a social capacity, so that the interhuman communication is what uh, drove evolution. So this is actually a kind of ulipo concept in the sense that the form of the brain, the form of the evolution of the of the brain, is what created the meaning in the mind. But okay, we have the one category of dead language, which is language that becomes so private nobody else can understand it. But there would be another category of dead language, which is I, I thought what she was talking about or how I remembered it, which is language that you make codified in your own life in such a way that it becomes uh, sterile and like a monument that is supposed to represent something that was meaningful to you personally, mm -hmm. but that you evolving beyond that, your, your life changing, you lose your own connection uh, 
yes. to that language. Yes. So it's not that the language is incapable of expressing to other people. It's that the language loses its meaning for you. Right. So, so I mean, yeah, that you, you, for, you, you may forget which books you dreamt of reading in bed with someone you loved. You may fall out of love and a chunk of your private language may become a dead language. So that you have that organization that at one point was actually meaningful and then you look upon it on your shelves and it's just an assortment of text. And, you know, it was interesting that you brought in the AI because with this sort of like, you know, not just books, but the the way that they relate to you and the way they kind of interrelate with each other, right? That it's not just about the one book. It's about a series of books on the shelf that were formative or, you know, in some way speak to a state of your mind at, at, a, at a point in time which you're still grappling with or, or which you have nostalgia for. I was thinking of... Um, I was thinking of her relationship to this, these books, um, and the sort of infinite possibilities of combinations, even within a constrained bookshelf. And I was thinking about the um, uh, the Library of Babel, hmm. um, the the great um, uh, short story. By Borges. Oh my God! Late at night. Jesus. Um, uh, so it's this library that has every, you know, every possible permutation of characters that you could have within, you know, I think it's like 266 pages or however, however long each book is. And it's just this sort of massively huge library in which there is every assortment of letters. And so every book that could be written, essentially. And, you know, for someone like um, Anne Goretta... I'm gonna I just. How would you pronounce her name? You seem better with the French than the, than either of us, Olivia. I I, I guess I would say uh, Garetta, but I'm probably butchering that too. Every time I spoke French, my teacher thought I was speaking Hebrew, so I'm <laughs> sure I'm the best person to talk about that. Um, you know, it like it's not just about the sort of the dead letters on the page, right? It's about the way that they interact with an individual human consciousness. And so, you know, there's a kind of, as a writer, like deep existential despair when you think that whatever book you're painfully trying to, you know, give birth to, it already exists in Borges' library, right? Um, And yet, you know, with this, it sort of, it, 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 it takes the, it takes the weight off of the work itself and clarifies that the whole reason the books are meaningful is to in, in the first place is the, you know, the ways in which we create them in our minds in a way that is sort of always exists beyond the text, always sort of adds things that, 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 that the text helps sort of shape and form that, that, you know, uh, a, a collection of letters on a page is an Ulipoian form of its own right for our consciousness to to uh, kind of uh, grapple with. And with the AI point, I was thinking of something that Jake and I were discussing in a previous podcast about um, Mikhail Tal, the great Latvian Soviet um, chess player. And I was saying, you know, he, he had said that, you know, his strategy in chess was, I take my opponent into a deep dark wood where two plus two equals five and the path out is only wide enough for, for one. Um, and, and Jake said, you know, the, the computer that will beat him at chess cares nothing for the poetry of that sentiment. And I said, yeah, but the, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, 
but I can care. And I said, yeah, but the, the, you know, the, the computer always wins. And Jake responded, well, maybe winning is a conceptual trap. And perhaps the, you know, the finished work of art is a conceptual trap. And it's actually this categorization, this constant sort of reshuffling of your relationship to the, 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 the text in your life and the ideas in your life and the sort of stories in your life that give you meaning that is the important thing. Yes. And I, I think one of the, the interesting things, and I think, you know, AI is actually a great um, thing to, to bring up. Uh, recently, I, I heard a podcast where they were talking about how, you know, algorithms, all you're doing is, is either overfitting or underfitting the algorithm to the data that you have. And, and that's really what she's getting at. In some ways, you're going to overfit, and maybe that's how the, you get the, the dead language, or you're going to underfit, and you're kind of going to permit everything in the, in the library of, of Babel-type situation, uh, of which uh, there's, a, there's a great quote from the Daniel Dennett, um, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, which he talks about the library of Babel. And uh, another ph philosophically delicious writer of fiction once published a novel that began, Call Me Ishmael. Oh, what a single comma can do. Or consider that many mutants that, again, begin with, Ball me, Ishmael. So, you know, in the in the Library of Babel, you're going to have far, far too many things, and you're going to have tons and tons of books that are, you know, grammatically incorrect or, you know, saying very, very different uh, different things about, you know, a whale. Uh, and so, I think there's there's this really, you know, interesting tension between between, you know, how how are we going to 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 categorize it based on on what we permit and what we're willing to say, yes, it's close, but you know, it doesn't, you know, that gradient, that, that fuzzy connection between the two. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of where we're getting at with the, you know, does, does the art matter? And, and I think that's kind of where it lies is, is in that kind of gradient, because if it, if it's only binary, um, I'm sure there's pretty things that you can do with ones and zeros, but I, I think it's, it's more limited than, than kind of what's in between that, that state. In, draw that out for me. It's what is the state? So I, I think that's it's the transition between the two. It's 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 that borderline of you know does it fit or does it not? And when you kind of have to either put it some put something in a place where it's it's overfit. You're, you're there's a there's a commentary about it of of kind of why why it places within this this subject. So. You know, for for instance, I, I have books that I've started to, to categorize. Um, I've been putting fiction with, you know, a lot of my like war theory books um, in order to make commentary between the books and, and you know, putting uh, Matter, Matterhorn next to something about Dien Bin Phu. So I, I think there's there's something that she doesn't quite capture, which is is the their relationship between the books. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. The relationship between the books is um, vital, though. I think that if you classify or if you, uh, you know, describe the books as parasitic vampires, you might be less apt to <laughs> to want to consider <laughs> the way in which they invest each other with uh, useful meaning. Um, but yeah, no, the 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 books in communication with each other is important because it's uh, 
it's symbols talking to each other through your mind. It's it or it's your mind talking. No, 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 no. It's not symbols talking to each other through your mind. It's your mind talking to itself through symbols. The books communicate with each other is a way of saying that your categorical recognition, your uh, symbolic meaning you give to those books uh, finds a way to uh, auto- you know, autonomously or outside of your deliberate intention, outside of your conscious effort, finds a way to reproduce, to synthesize, to create new forms, new categories of meaning. I have on my shelf certain essential categories, right? And those categories talk to each other. It's not just the books talk to each other. Like the categories that I consider essential in so far as they have already been deemed essential by me uh, inform each other through that context. So for instance, I have certain kinds of genre fiction separated out in my fiction. Science fiction, uh, there's a whole section just for science fiction. Not science writing, which goes in nonfiction, but fiction, science fiction, there's a section. That is next to, all right, crime, which is next to detective novels. But the meaning of crime, if it was only crime and detective novels on that shelf, I think crime would mean something different than it does presently where crime sits in between science fiction and detective novels. This may be a dead language. I may be only (laughs) talking to myself, but it's feeling all very full of meaning to me at the moment. Dead silence. I'm trying to think of, you know, like alien space crime uh, is is kind of like the, the nexus between that. But, but I, you know, Similar in terms of, you know, I have a lot of war literature that's connected to, you know, next to just war literature, which is then going into a lot of drone stuff, which then goes into a lot about how we, you know, kind of a little bit of postmodernism, which then goes into, like, how do computers work? Mm. Um, And then it goes into, you know, more like, hard physics and then there's like da Vinci. So, you know, there, there's this transition for me as well in terms of, of how, you know, some of my works uh, have, you know, put next to to one another. I, w- I would say this is also important for how I, how I write. So a lot of times when I'm working on something, I'll have um, a sort of a couple of disparate ideas or narratives or images that stick in my mind that mean something to me and they feel like they um, they rhyme with other narratives or yeah. ideas or images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and oftentimes, the sort of further apart they seem, the more I want to craft some kind of narrative in which I thread a, a sort of narrative line through them because I feel like like I don't know like I don't know why these this these three things belong together right and and this happens for me in nonfiction you know where like I'm gonna write a piece about um you know uh this marine who 
you know, received the Navy Cross for like killing a tr- tremendous number of people in this crazy, you know, Rambo-like uh, thing in the initial invasion where he um, jumped into a, uh, a trench full of Iraqi soldiers. Oh, uh, and, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. this. Yeah, unloaded, you know, unloaded his rifle yeah. and, and pistol. As he's running down the trench, and then like picks up an AK from an you know Iraqi that he killed, and like unloads that. Yeah, he was a lieutenant, and, right? Uh, yeah, Chantosh, Brian yeah, Chantosh. Um, and then that story, and this story that like a Navy uh, nurse told me about working on saving the life of an insurgent who had killed a Marine that they had lost. Right, like he died on the table, and then this, um, you know. The, the sniper, the insurgent sniper who killed the, this Marine comes in, they save his life, and then, like, working on him. And then a story told by another friend of mine about torture. Um, and, like, those things sort of – and then a little bit about George Washington. Like, those things make sense to me for some reason, and then I need to figure out a, a way to make it intelligible in my own mind why there are those resonances. And, and I generally feel like if I can, if they're disparate, it'll usually – It'll usually force me to find out something important or interesting or useful, hopefully. And I do that. I do that in fiction. I do that in nonfiction. And it sort of tends to be when I ha- when I have disparate elements that seem like they rhyme together. That's when I feel like I'm sort of close to something that's um, that's actually worth writing about. See, this is this is useful because it distills something, which is you know the, what the Ulipo brings up, not just this piece, but the. The project of the Ulipo brings up is this question of, you know, does form precede meaning? Does meaning precede form? It's better to say form creates meaning. Mm-hmm. Let's leave aside for a second uh, what is the uh, original generative category um, or what, what is the original category. Uh, the original, if you say category, you're already privileging form over meaning, right? So um, I, I can't even figure out how to use words trapped as they are in forms to <laughs> convey the meaning absent the form. But what I'm saying is that you're describing this intuition that these three narratives share some sort of through line, right? And the through line to you is a, a meaning, a spirit, a feeling um, – but the the proximity is going to inform the meaning that you give them that's supposed to capture the meaning they already had. Similarly, the books on the shelves take on the meaning in some sense of where you put them, which then will determine where you move them to next, which will inform their future meaning. I, I have maybe a better example than the genre fiction. I put my miscellany next to the poetry that I have. And in the last couple of years, I've been reading a lot more poetry uh, than I had since I was in college, probably. I'd sort of stopped reading so much poetry, and then in the last maybe two or three years, I really, I'm not sure why. I, I felt drawn back to verse in a way. And I have all of these miscellaneous, uncategorizable books um, these weird, like, uh, experimental memoirs, uh, these kind of anthologies of, um, incomprehensible, um, technical jargon. I, I can't even say exactly oddities that I've collected for whatever reason. And somehow the, the 
fact that they and the poems are next to each other makes both the miscellany and the poetry feel different to me. Uh, the miscellany feels more poetic. The poetry feels more miscellaneous in some way. Um, but I enjoy it. But I will, I will likely move them in the next great reshuffling because every few years I get seized by the need. You know, my mind becomes radically disordered. I am trapped in a fit of self-loathing. I, like, you know, get drunk and try to reorganize my books. This is... I can't go more than three or four years of my life without this occurring in a kind of radical, uh, convulsive way, you know, not in like a routine, I need to take all the books on the floor and put them back on the shelves way, but in a, a more, what feels at the time, profound, um, you know, my life is in shambles. I, I have to organize my books in such a way that it'll put my mind straight, which will in turn uh, produce the actions and outcomes in my life that I desire. The next time I do this, the poetry and the miscellany, wherever it is that they land on the shelf, will have to do with the meaning form that they created in proximity to each other now. I, I think... What, what that gets at is it, it's, it's kind of like a, an intellectual junk drawer, for, for lack of a, a better description, in terms of, of trying to find that, that limit between what, what I can actually you know, categorize by form and, and what, what I can't. Um, and in some ways, by circumscribing it by, hey, I, I can't fully describe this. But because I can't fully describe it in many ways, that does describe it. Um, and so being able to, to segregate things out that way um, and in many ways is, is very useful. And I'm, you know, uh, reminded of the, the structure of um, one of the, the poetry techniques for, for Olipo, um, the N plus seven. Yeah, N plus seven is the best. And, and I think that, you know, the fact that it's N plus seven and not N plus eight or N plus six is, is kind of getting at how far can I push it? Uh, can you it ex explain what it is. So it's a structure where you uh, was invented by um, Jean Lescure, uh, which replaces each noun in a text with the seventh one following it in a dictionary. Um, so in French, it's called the S plus seven. Uh, and so, you know, for, for instance, if you do N plus seven of the Declaration of Independence, you will get the beginning that will sound like this. When in the courtroom of human evocations, it becomes necessary for 1% to dissolve the political bangs which have connected them with, with another and to assume among the praises of the East the seraph and equal statute to which the layabouts of Nier and of Nier's godson entitle them. A decent rest to the oppressions of mankind requires that they should declare the cavemen which impel them to determinate. <laughs> yeah, you, you can only imagine what our country would have looked like had that been our founding document. You know, for better or worse, for better or worse, the cavemen impelled to do what they will. Yeah. So, so should we, get, should we get to the the end? She sort of, I guess, lays out the, <laughs> um, you know, the kind of so what do we do point. She says, 
we're caught between ways of finding things in the world and ways of finding things in our minds, between functionality and memorability, use and value, notwithstanding simple sloppiness. And then uh, she says, could we order the outside world, the world of objectivity, real books following patterns residing in our minds, the patterns according to which phantom books reside in our minds? You'd be out of your mind. Could we escape our misery by simply swallowing a computer and turning our minds into subsets of the Library of Congress catalog? You'd be out of your mind. Pug public classifications and categorizations have the force of law, the efficiency of norms. To resist them requires a super superhuman effort. To subject oneself fully to them, an even more superhuman effort. Just take a look at your bookshelves or at yourselves, your bookshelves. So what are we to do? The laundry, possibly. It's easy. See instructions above. Why not mix ourselves a couple of metaphors instead? Yeah. I think that's great. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of doing the laundry, but uh, <laughs> it's not my preferred, my, it's not my go-to metaphor to mix, but um, I understand the impulse. And... Um, you know, I one, like the spirit of the Ulipo. Uh, yes, I agreed. And and one last, you know, saved round. Uh, her the fact this is a translation, like so. You know, we we've I think kind of danced around the 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 issue of of translation in some ways, um, in in categorization based on the different structures of of language. Um, and she she writes. Uh, about the, the note on this translation that writing in a still and possibly forever foreign language feels like attempting to down glasses of wine with boxing gloves on. I can't help but spill and spell gallicisms all over my English prose. Yeah, and I just want to say that the only reason um, we avoided discussing that was uh, cowardice. Otherwise, it's, we're just afraid to talk about it. We, we would have, but we're... Um, we didn't feel strong enough inside. What? <laughs> you know, we're cowards. That's why we wouldn't talk about the translation issue. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, what uh, I guess, what would this look at, look like in practice? I feel like it looks like my, my apartment right now. <laughs> but does it look like your apartment? I mean, you know, have you attempted to order your shelf in this sort of uh, esoteric private code? I mean, have you really tried to do that? I feel like there's, there is this, this private code. There's, it's, there, it's trying to be conventional, but inevitably failing. Um, so trying to be like, this fits the category of, you know, war literature. This fits the category of philosophy. This fits the category of, you know, political science, um, but they seep into one another and bleed, which I think is why, you know, I think she even mentions with the laundry uh, about, you know, if you if you mix the, the colors, you know, you're going to get some bleeding between between the clothes. Yeah, um, and I, I think that's kind of what what happens is you might try and structure it in in kind of the conventional conventional way. Um, and it, it's going to break down at some point and, and fall into these these categories. You, you know what this looks like? I think it looks like this podcast. Like this like weird ordering of things, uh, unlike things according to a kind of particular sensibility where you um, 
are then trying to engage with it, right? I mean, that's the, that's the whole point of doing this, like a manifesto, that, mm. and and and, a, and paired with a work of art. That's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, yeah. So, that was part of what we were thinking, right? The reason why, and Phil and I are planning on doing a, a kind of tenth anniversary thing. Well, we're, where we're going to talk more about. What we think about tenth podcast, not you know, ten tenth years from now, anniversary, yeah, yeah, podcast, <laughs> not podcast, yeah, yeah. But the kind of a, the original motivation, in part, was let's introduce a constraint. Let's not sit here and talk to one another. You're not that interesting. <laughs> I'm not that interesting. <laughs> um, no, we we need, you know. The the ball needs a wall to bounce off of. You know what I mean? You want to throw the ball and, and watch it dribble out uh, towards nothing. It's it's not it's not so good. It's not so fun. And you're not enough of a wall constantly because you're too predictable as a wall. You know you you need like a hard wall, a contour that is not of your own choosing. That you you can't move where you want it to be to accommodate the way you want the wall to make the ball bounce, right? You just need a wall to make the ball bounce. And that was part of the thinking with this. I do think though, Olivia, that, you know, you're saying that you try, even if you try to use the formal categories that the personal, personal categories can't, are irrepressible in some sense, right? Is that, that's what I think you were saying. Yes, I I would, I would argue that. I think that they're, they're going to kind of resurge. You might be able to, to tamp them down for a little bit, but at some point uh, you're going to have something that doesn't fit. Right. But I think she's also saying you have to force that, right? It's not just that the personal categories are uh, irrepressible and, and will worm their way into or, or, or will emerge uh, in a kind of emergent order in the things you think are external categories. It's also that in order to make the external categories make sense, uh, in order to in 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 order to have a, a balance of kind of order and chaoticness, uh, personal control and uh, and recognition of a lack of control, you have to introduce some, not arbitrary is not the right word, but you have to, you have to break the formality of the categories in some way in a kind of ritual of recognition. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a, a kind of, not a sacrifice, but it's a, a, a ritualistic act to show that by, uh, introducing a bit of uh, an idiosyncratic category, you're acknowledging that no category can be perfect. And in doing that, you're actually getting closer to uh, the truer category. I think that's part of what she's getting at also. And, and, and also that those, that those things are always in flux, right? Like that's, that's important, right? That I, I think that it's that sort of... Um, moving between cons- the sort of necessity of constraint and the way in which constraint can generate meaning and then the the ever human sort of need to break that constraint at the same time or move past it or render it defunct in some way and 
you know, not not settling on either a sort of absolute rejection of, you know, categories and constraints and that kind of thinking, but also not um, not thinking that you can ever, you know, develop a system of classification that will actually be sufficient to even organizing your bookshelf, let alone your bookself. Mm. <laughs> your bookself. I know. It sounds uh, lamer when I say it that way, but it's cool in her essay. It works. In also, the essay. if you look her yeah. up online, she's got really cool, like, cool French person hair. Uh, the French do have... Why? Hold on for a second. <laughs> Wait a second. Why do the French have the coolest hair? Why is that? I have no. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking Versailles something. <laughs> it's true though, right? There, there's. A, I don't even know what her hair looks like, but there are a whole number of French people whose hair. Artaud had great hair. I forgot. Somebody yeah. said that once, and I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh man, Artaud, she has great hair." I'm, I'm and this Jacob is not Frodo. so far off. There's a certain kind of French hair where it's like. Uh, it stands up, it waves. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, and I think there's something that you can insouciance. And I, I think there's something that you can pull out with the fact that she she compares the bookshelves to to laundry. And if you if you think of laundry as kind of the the quotidian task of you know I need to do this to clean my clothes, you know that's one way to look at it. But you can also look at in many ways, what we wear, fashion, is just as much a, a you know, more of the public statement of, of our different selves. Um, and I would say that the French are, you know, certainly <laughs> very, very good at, at fashion. Um, and so I think that there's, there's this other uh, interesting dichotomy between, you know, clothing uh, is kind of a very public persona and then the, the books that we surround ourselves with is, is a very private persona. Yeah, you know, want to hear something that uh, is going to blow your mind. You look at these pictures of Michelle Welbeck, and he looks uh, not just repulsive, but like a cartoon of repulsiveness, right? He's like this collection of Gallic features in a caricature i mean he if you if you ask the caricature artist to do dissolute uh ugly frog french poet with weird stringy hair chain smoker you'd get uh an image of michelle welbeck right he'll be okay he's uh he's done a few other things that uh are going to make up for what I have to say about him on this podcast. But here's the interesting thing. I went and saw him two years ago, I guess, maybe a year and a half ago, at a photography exhibit that he, it was his photographs in New York at a strange French cultural society place on the uh, the Upper East Side. And his photographs were, um, they were okay. They were interesting, kind of backlit urban scenes of urban decay. Uh, but what was really astounding is that he's actually sort of a handsome guy in person. 
and you look at these photographs of him, and it's just inconceivable. Not it's inconceivable um, that he would be not repulsive, let alone handsome. And yet, in person, there's some way in which some supernatural quality of Frenchness that floats above the actual features, maybe, and. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I don't know, redeems. Look at a picture of him online and tell me he's not, uh, you know, tell me he's, it's ugly in a, in a ostentatious way. Like he's trying to prove to you how ugly he is, but then you see him in person and it's not just that he's not ugly. He's sort of nice looking, actually. It's a, it was a jarring experience. Just like you, Jake. Nobody knows how to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, I I think that people who've seen pictures of Welbeck are going to be surprised. You guys don't know our audience. I think our audience is going to be surprised because they've seen the pictures of him and they're thinking there's no way that he's not this um, cartoon of French... Poet, you know, chain smoking French poet ugliness, but he's not. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay, that, that might be part of you know a dead private language. So. <laughs> That's possible. It's <laughs> entirely possible. Better, better dead. <laughs> like maybe a private language that deserves to be killed off. Yeah. You're saying. All right, it wouldn't be the first time. Should we go to the Naked City then? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this was. Um, this is. Guy Debord. Um, Guy do you, Debord. I think it's Guy, but do you, you don't pronounce the final D, right? It'd be Guy Debord. Debord? Sure. Uh, yeah. I believe. I think so. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, I like, so Guy Debord, <clears throat> uh, most famous for Society of the Spectacle, which is uh, about how in, it's a sort of French uh, Marxist um Situationist. Yeah. The idea that sort of in modern capitalism, we have replaced our authentic relationships with each other with, um, uh, I guess, like artificial images or, or the spectacle or... Actually, there's something kind of perfect about doing uh, Guy Debord with, with you, Olivia, because we've only met on Twitter. Um, yes. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know... Oh, Guy would be. Why did you pick this, Olivia? What made you think um, Guy Debord so, with Theulipa? So I think it, it was more the the Naked City in particular, um, mm. and then you know realizing that that was Guy Debord, um, mostly because what you know to to get into the the Naked City, it's one of his his works where they cut up a map of Paris. Um, and divided into 19 sections that are then randomly placed back together. And one, I, I find maps to be to be very fascinating as they kind of evolve over time. And I, I've, I've felt that same kind of um, evolution that you get from the the ten principles um, from the on bookshelves piece. Uh, and so this is kind of a, almost a reverse categorization of you start from a map, which is which is a, a definite ordering of of space. Um, and information, and then you're cutting it up to to find new paths. So it's kind of the inverse, I think, of what she was doing. Um, so that's that's what I found really fascinating, um, and I, I I think just 
interesting in kind of the same ways of, of taking something with, with form um, and looking at how it, it can come up with uh, a multitude of meaning again. Yeah, so I think, so part of it is this idea, and it, and it ties into the sort of society of the spectacle and trying to get into an authentic relationship between things that there is, even within the ways that we navigate a city, a codified, organized way in which we're supposed to conceive of the geography and think of, think of it, and then this is going to force us out of our normal roots, force us into just through the way that we walk the city. Um, because it's a map, it's a map you're actually supposed to use and, 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 and kind of physically put yourself in this situation um, where you're experiencing these relationships between the city in a different way than a normal map would would enable you to, and that's, you know, supposed to force you into this kind of authentic relationship with the landscape that has become um, dead or has been sort of subsumed in this sort of official geography. I would encourage people, uh, Google the naked city, Guy Debord, D-E-B-O-R-D, and look at the map. Uh, you can find it online very easily. It's really quite striking to look at, actually. It's a very cool uh, art object, yeah. the kind of flow of the lines yeah. between the 19 sections of the city. It's like Paris is a squid. It's kind of cool. Paris is a squid. And, you know, it's supposed to be this kind of psychological topography or psychosexual, psycho-emotional topography. Um, I, I believe, Olivia, stop me if I'm wrong here. I believe that the 19 sections of the city were chosen uh, based on the idea that they had not yet been corrupted by capitalism and the kind of cultural homogeneity of uh, consumer culture. I, I don't know whether or not there, there was um, a reason why he, he chose them. It might be the arrondissement. Um, but what I think is, is really interesting is, is kind of the, the randomness of putting it back together yeah. and, and kind of whether or not in some ways you get back to the use value, you know, Emma, are you going to get use out of this? Are you going to get more value out of this? Because you're going to be wandering in ways that, that you wouldn't kind of in the sense that you well-worn path, you're going to be looking at the ground. And when you're, you know, wandering and exploring, you tend to look up. And, and that's kind of one of the marks of, of a tourist or something is whether or not you're looking down or you're looking up. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that is kind of what, this this map is going to give you. So, do you think you know Michel Deserteau? No. Is it no. a French Jesuit? Um, so every Jacob, every episode, there's some French Jesuit I don't know <laughs> that Phil brings up. Uh, very relevant. Okay, so he has this book, "The Practice of the Practice of the Everyday," um, and there's this sort of famous bit in there where he's talking about seeing Manhattan from the 110th floor of the World Trade Center, right? Mm. You know, and he's got this description, beneath the haze, stirred up by the winds, the urban island, a sea in the middle of the sea, lifts up the skyscrapers over Wall Street, sinks down at Greenwich, then rises again to the crests of Midtown, quietly passes over Central Park, and finally undulates off into the distance beyond High Harlem, a wave of verticals. Its agitation is momentarily arrested by vision. The gigantic mass is immobilized before the eyes. 
it is transformed into a textuology in which extremes coincide, extremes of ambition and degradation. He's describing the whole city and it's just sort of rich, beautiful descriptions. And then he says, to what erotics of knowledge does the ecstasy of reading such a cosmos belong? Um, to be lifted to the summit of the World Trade Center is to be lifted out of the city's grasp. One's body is no longer clasped by the streets that turn and return it according to an anonymous law, nor is it possessed whether as a player or played by the rumble of so many differences and by the nervousness of New York traffic. Um, and when you go up there, right, instead of this bewitching world by which one's possessed, it turns it into a text that lies before one's eyes. It allows one to read it, to be a solar eye looking down like a god. And of course, New York is this grid. So you see it as this planned, organized thing that looks very organized and control from above, from, you know, the 110th floor of the World Trade Center. Um, and, and then he describes, you know, the practi ordinary practitioners of the city live down below, below the thresholds at which visibility begins. They walk, an elementary form of this experience of the city. They are walkers, whose bodies follow the thicks and thins of an urban text they write without being able to read it. These practitioners make use of spaces that cannot be seen. Their knowledge of them is as blind as that of lovers in each other's arms. The, past, the, the paths that correspond in this intertwining, unrecognized poems in which each body is an element signed by many others elude, illegibility, elude legibility. And so it's this sense of like seeing from above and thinking you, there, you know, there's this grid and organized plan and then this unconscious experience of living in a city which is a function of, of walking it, of being gripped by the streets, but also by the others passers-by, by not necessarily following precisely the right track, you know, the, the, the exact plan of the, you know, traffic laws, by, you know, the way in which human beings, no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, make art, even whether it's sort of art in the, in the, in the form of, you know, um, physical objects or just in the ways in which one's walking behavior through a city is never a strictly instrumental purpose. Yeah, but here's where the Marxism has to, uh, to his version of Marxism, which is idiosyncratic, has mm -hmm. to uh, be acknowledged because De Boer is not saying that the urban planning is a delusion. De Boer is not saying that the 10,000-foot view or the 10,000-foot design of the city is aloof from or incapable of grasping the walker's view of the city and is is uh, never going to be suited to that ground level view. De Boer is saying that the urban planning vision of the city, that the city planner's vision has a very deliberate purpose in mind, is perhaps effective at achieving that purpose, which is to steer you uh, through the stations of yeah. of capital so that you buy the things you're supposed to buy, so that you uh, perform the kind of consumer role you're supposed to perform without dwelling too much on the, uh, the meaning or the nature or the drives of your life that exist independent from the drives of capital and, and production. Yes. This, this, this is precisely where I'm going, right? That for, for De Boer, you know, well, most of us are just a stupid sheeple and you need to be a fancy French situationist to have the authentic mm. experience of the city. And Michel de Certeau is, 
certainly would not deny the ways in which the grid and the organization shape and constrain human life, but like the everyday person walking by, even if sort of unconsciously, is not is is never strictly obeying that rule, right? Mm. Um, and that for him, they're having an authentic experience, even when they're not, you know, cutting up a map of Paris, and then yeah. very self consciously as this sort of like philosophical, artistic, you know, act, you know, navigating their way through the city. Yes. And, and one of the interesting things are, have you, are you guys familiar with uh, non-places by Mark, um, uh, okay. I'm probably going to, no, tell us something about that. Um, what, what this is, this is a a work that's exploring all this idea of non-place. So these are places where, you know, alone, but one of many, the user of a non-place is in contractual relations with it or with the powers that govern it. These are airports, bus stations, you know, places of transition yeah. hmm. that that don't have the, the cultural monuments that, that we would normally associate, you know, with the Arc de Triomphe or something like that. This is, you know, the the places where you're kind of not within those, those constraints. Um, and, and with that, and I think it, it ties into the, um, the view from the, the empire state building is that, and, and this is going into what he calls super, super modern. Wow. I can't speak super modern. Wow. Modernity. Yes. Thank you. That, that word, um, does not exactly match the one in which we believe we live for. We live in a world that we have not yet learned to look at. We have to relearn to think about space. And I think that's what he's trying to do um, with, with the naked city. Um, and there's, there's certainly the, the agenda of, of breaking up the, the capitalistic and you know, cultural constraints. But in some ways, they've created those own spaces themselves um, because we have shopping malls and, and places that really aren't places. Yeah, I mean, I like that aspect of it. You know, I quite like the map as an art mm-hmm. object. I, I like looking at the map. I like the feel of the map. I like, I think, the the sense of motion and the spirit of motion through the city that the map is trying to convey. But I get caught on what I know about the Boar's ideas and the society of the spectacle. And my problem with them is not just that they're Marxists, you know, they're better and worse Marxist ideas or, or smarter and or, you know, less smart iterations of some of those ideas. My problem is that... It's a bold statement. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I, I take stands on this podcast. Uh, you know, the problem I have is that I think that his idea, the spectacle... For one thing, if I'm going to choose a kind of French postmodernist with an idea of, uh, you know, the value of Simulacra, I'm going with Baudrillard who I used to think was a complete con artist, you know, for a long time. And I I wrote something a few years ago. It's been a line I think I actually, sometimes I plagiarize myself. I think I might have used this line in print a few different times. But the discovery that Baudrillard was right about a lot of the world is a nightmare from which I will never... (laughs) fully awake yeah it's been devastating to me to realize that Baudrillard who I thought was a con artist um 
maybe six or seven years ago, I started to realize, oh, oh no, wait, Baudrillard was right about all of these these different things, about the the the, the function of the Somalokra in society, about the inability of the authentic object uh, to exist outside the perception uh, of the object, the way in which we now complete the spectacle that sort of latent before us that we don't even allow the spectacle to develop because we intervene in the spectacle. There are all these Baudrillard, Baudrillardian, uh, Baudrillardian ideas that I, I think, look, there's still a lot of French nonsense in Baudrillard, but uh, some of it's quite insightful. With De Boer, though, you know, there's there's something fun about this. There's something I, I like in the spirit of the Naked City. But when I look at it in relation to, I think, some of what I think he got wrong in the society of the spectacle and the idea of what the spectacle is, it becomes difficult for me to disentangle. And maybe that's not the right way to be looking at this map, um, which on its own is quite compelling, I think. It's lovely. And, yeah. And so, I mean, just as a general idea, right? Like take this city, this place that you think you know and then force yourself to experience it physically, physically in a different way is great. Like that's a great idea, right? Whether yeah. regardless of the, you know, ideology you're putting on top of it, how could that not be a useful generative experience? It's fantastic. Yeah. And and that's one of the reasons it's one of the reasons I used to like biking through the city at random. I had an idea. I think our crack producer, Adam, and I discussed this many years ago, actually. Might have even been, well, I was still in high school. It was a long time ago. We talked about, there was an idea that you would take the subway, every subway line in New York to every stop, get out, walk around for 15 minutes, get back. And if you did that, if you took every subway line in New York to every stop, got out at every stop, got out and walked around for 15 minutes. Um, You'd be tired. You would not only be tired. I mean, in, in a way, right, it's kind of the opposite because it's attempting to be comprehensive and exhaustive instead of an intuitive map, uh, a map of ellipses and elisions, which is what this is. That's an attempt to be a, a kind of more formalized, cartographic experience. But, but it was... Getting at what you're talking about, Phil, which is like a way to force yourself to experience the city in a way outside of the kind of natural ways in which your routine channels you, the 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 you know the the interests that are operating in the city try to channel you from one thing to another. It's a way of sort of trying to get away from that and saying. Okay, but by being kind of so arbitrary and so yeah. blunt in this approach, I'll just ride the subway to every stop. That bluntness is also its own sort of defiance because you're not yeah. supposed to do that, right? That doesn't make sense. The, I, I, I will say, so I like it. I do have, there's always something weird to me with sort of like self-conscious authentic, authenticity seeking, you know? Mm. Um, which... I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, I mean, there's this sort of, um, it's like a genre of like 
like privileged person goes to the you know a sort of poor place and experiences like authentic feeling. I mean, this is like the basic mm. you know trope of like the college essay and there are more sophisticated variants of it. And you know, it's this kind of like, oh, am I am I experiencing am I experiencing an authentic thing right now? You know, and there's a great bit in um, in Jeff Dyer has a book called. Uh, yoga for people that can't be bothered to do it hmm. um, where he's with like a bunch of uh, tourists in I think it's in India and or, or one of the guys is talking about being in India and like a woman begging on the street with like has like a dead baby that she like shoves in front of passersby's face to be like I have a dead baby you need to give me money and then like the other tourists being uh, envious that they didn't have a story hmm. as disturbing as that. Um, and so I, I, I always have this kind of, you know, my sense is more, you know, aligned with Michel de Certeau, despite the fact that he's a Jesuit. It has nothing to do with Catholicism. But the hmm. Michel de Certeau, like, human beings naturally create authentic relations and ways of being no matter where they are. And a sort of overemphasis on authenticity is just its own form of well, fancy. And, and yeah. I, I think that gets into, you know, this this contingency that he's capturing on here um, almost makes it, in, or it does make it in many ways inauthentic. It's, you know, I, I can think of times where I've run around and decided that I'm going to make turns at every, you know, uh, where the the walking, you know, the walking symbol is on. And so that's what determines the route that I, that I end up running through. Um, but if I were to try and actually, you know, chart that down and say you should, you know, make all these turns based on whether or not you see the crosswalk says walk or doesn't walk, it, it almost loses the, the spirit of the contingency that I think he's trying to capture. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's getting into your, your inauthentic, you know, college essay piece is that by trying to say, hey, you know, look at this really unique way of doing it. You, you end up, you know, crushing the butterfly when you're trying to pin it down. But his counter-argument, right, to just give that a voice for a second, would be that, and this is, I think, hardly unique to the board, but that the possibility of the authentic experience has been foreclosed on in a modern, he would say, capitalist uh, society in which... Uh, commoditization has made it so that all is either commodity or in this case, cultural commodity, which is spectacle. So the unmediated existence, the ability to simply live and be authentic uh, has been deprived us, which is why we need to stage these radical interventions like this kind of map or, you know, potentially, uh, uh, you know, removing spectacle from our lives in other ways. That's the counter argument. My problem with the Boer is not that I think that uh, there's a lack of spectacle in society. I, I think that his conception of how uh, spectacle functions and, and what purpose spectacle serves is misguided. I, I tend to think of spectacle... Uh, the, the kind of grand spectacle or the aggregate meaning of the various spectacles in our society is not being um, driven purely 
or even sometimes primarily by commercial or capitalist interests, but by uh, recurring uh, social themes, uh, uh, kind of psychological drives that play out through these spectacles that the social media is a perfect example. I was reading something about the board in preparation for this. And somebody writing about him mentioned in passing, you know, how he'd have a field day with uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, being somebody who was preoccupied with the idea of spectacle overtaking society. But if you look at how Facebook and uh, Twitter, for instance, function, you know, obviously it's true that they serve these massive monopolistic, in fact, in the case of Facebook, commercial uh, capitalist interests. But the the form that the spectacle takes serves other purposes as well. It, it, the, the form that it takes, whether it's a kind of collective frenzy, a, a bloodletting, uh, scapegoating, um, you know, I'm thinking now, actually, there's something I read. Actually, this is all tangent about Rene Girard. Let me skip this. I think one, we have two French philosophers. Let me skip this. Any what, guys... what, what could be more authentic and like human and rooted in like the most basic human drives and community than a desire for mob behavior and scapegoating? <laughs> No, no, I'm saying yeah. that is authentic. Right, like it's, yeah, the Twitter behavior Exa- is authentic. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm saying that Debor is suggesting that the... Oh, this is only in capitalism. No, that capitalism yeah. uses these spectacles essentially to divorce us from our authentic selves. I'm saying the authentic self resurfaces. Like yeah. the, the, the drives can't be fully smothered or extinguished. They reassert themselves through the spectacle, whatever purpose the spectacle conceives of for itself, it, it's overtaken by these more fundamental drives, you know, and it, and it becomes an expression of them. I don't know how neatly the naked city fits into this. You know, it's, sort of, it's obviously related to his general philosophy, but it's kind of off in its own thing. And, um, as I, I mean, as I said, I like it. I like it. So do Actually, I. I like it a lot. And I just think, like, it's a matter of, you know, I, I don't think you put too much pressure on it, right? Like, the, you know the, the, the Babel line in Guy de Maupassant about translation where he's like, like a phrase is born into the world and it's good and bad at the same time. And you have to, you, have to, you know, grasp it gently, mm. you know, grasp the key gently, warming it, and then and then the key must be turned once, not, right. twi- not twice. Right, right. Right, you know, and it, I sort of think like, you know, philosophers who worry too much about authenticity worry me about authenticity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, but I, I do like this very much, and I thought this was great. Um, anything, anything else? Olivia? No, no, I, I think that, you know, that, that key turning speaks equally to kind of the, the categorizations is that if you if you start looking, you know, too hard at the way that I, you know, me personally organize my bookshelf or, you know, decide to walk through, then, you know, you become self-conscious of it and it kind of collapses. So it's that kind of delicate touch with, with that is, you know, I think where you might be able to find the kind of that authentic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Fantastic. 
Hey, that's great. Olivia, thanks so much for coming on. This was a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was quite a treat for me and definitely was, you know, touching, uh, scratching a, an itch. So it was, it was, a, it was fun. Great. Do you have anything on the strategy bridge you want to plug? Um, not, I don't think anything in particular. You can, they can check out, you know, Google my name, check it, check it out. But like, I don't have anything that I'm particularly plugging. Okay. Well, follow, great. follow T and tactics. She's an excellent Twitter follow, um, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, including you can, you can marvel at the fact that she worked her way through the philosophy of set theory. Um, I don't even know what that is. I have no idea what that is, but I, I know that you tweeted about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks again. Take it Thank easy. Thank you. Bye.